After being completely choked off by the pandemic, the travel industry is surging back to life. After a year without vacations, more than a few people are itching to venture back out. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Boulder. And on today's program, we will speak with one of the most popular travel show hosts in the nation. When you've been to over 60 countries... Staying home can be a little claustrophobic, but when the travel industry began to slowly come back to life, the first place she wanted to go was Florida. We'll explain why the Sunshine State just might be perfect for putting your toe back in the travel water. Samantha Brown, host of Samantha Brown's Places to Love, seen on public television, will also explain why she believes travel can actually mark make you a better person. You know what? If she's saying it, Bill, I'm listening to it because I have always been a big Samantha Brown fan. I think she's a great communicator. After that, we're going to have a fascinating conversation about delusions and and why, for the most part, delusional is the last thing that any of us would want to be. However, a New York Times bestselling author and former NPR host, uh, Shankar Vedantam, actually believes that sometimes having delusions can be a big help. He'll tell us how they can keep us motivated through difficult times, brighten our outlook, and even improve our chances of recovering from disease. He's going to offer some insights into into how our brains work and why sometimes a delusion or two can actually make all the difference. Ordinary people, extraordinary lives, it's time for Growing Bolder. And you know, folks, it goes without saying that one of the casualties of the pandemic has been travel. And as we've all learned, As we get older, life does become less about things and a whole lot more about experiences. And there is no question that travel is one of the most enriching experiences that we can have. And that certainly is the lesson that Samantha Brown learned a long time ago. And thanks to her inquisitive nature, her her unique storytelling ability, and her incredibly appealing personality, she's become one of the most successful travel hosts and producers anywhere. Yeah, she's great. I'm, I'm sure y'all know who we're talking about, too, because her shows on the Travel Channel have included, you know, I've got a short list here, Girl Meets Hawaii, <laughs> Great Vacation Homes, Great Hotels, Passport to Europe, Passport to Latin America, Great Weekends, Green Getaways, Passport to China, and Samantha Brown's Asia. I could go on and on with that, but now... She's a fixture on public broadcasting with her fourth season of Samantha Brown's Places to Love on PBS stations across the nation. In 2019, Mark, her show won an Emmy for Outstanding Travel Adventure Program. And, of course, she won the Emmy for Outstanding Host. Yeah, you can tell Bill and I are big fans. All told, she has visited some 250 cities in over 60 countries, uh, hosting nearly 400 travel episodes. And with all of us, I imagine she's a little stir-crazy and anxious to get out and explore. Uh, so we thought, who better to talk to about the return to travel than Samantha Brown herself, who is kind enough to join us now from her home in Brooklyn. Samantha, how you doing? Oh, very good. How are you doing? Thanks so much for having me on. Well, we're thrilled to talk to you. And if it's okay, let's do start with the obvious. Uh, you have to travel, uh, at least one would think so, to produce travel shows. How has the pandemic impacted your ability to do what you do? 
I mean, pretty severely. We usually shoot 13 episodes for a season. This year, we were able to do five, which is pretty amazing. We shot two episodes um, back in the middle of the pandemic with masks, social distancing, but we just felt it was really important for us, my own, <laughs> um, I don't know, my own soul, as well as promoting travel. Like you said, it really um, was catastrophic in terms of what it did for an industry. So we felt it was really important to get at least something out there. And uh, so our show started airing about a month ago. And it's been it's been massive because now travel is coming back very strongly. And so even though the pandemic um, definitely put a, a limp in our step, we, we limped across that finish line and, and we feel good about about this year. You know, Mark and I and a good part of our growing Boulder community were pretty excited to hear that. Not long ago, you were in Florida shooting great socially distant segments. I believe you were in <laughs> Naples and you were in Fort Myers. I think you went to Sanibel, too, which is one of our favorite places. Are you ready to return to travel? I mean, what do you do and, and where do you go? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I was ready back in the fall. We shot in Fort Myers in November um, and we did Sanibel Island, Captiva, um, as well as uh, uh, Keo Costa and Cabbage Key, just all the little islands around there. It'd been the first time I had seen the beach in over a year, which is, is just crazy. It was the first time I got on a flight in uh, probably 10 months. So it was it's, shooting a travel show is very different from actually traveling. Um, we have to there's eight of us. There's two camera. There's drones. There's and it's all about being with people and connecting with people. And all of a sudden I'm not allowed to do that. So we uh, had to make um, some big changes, but we still wanted the show to be about people because that's what it's about when you travel. And Fort Myers, especially, and Sanibel Island, um, it has wonderful people who are so fierce, are just fierce advocates for where they live in terms of the nature, in terms of the marine life and the art that comes from it. So we wanted to show that. And we were able to do that. And just, you know, on a personal front, it was just so nice to be alone without kids doing, you know, second grade remote. I have twins in second grade remote school and uh, just to see that beach. So on a personal uh, level, it was wonderful. And on a professional level, we realized, hey, this is something we can do. And um, and now it's gotten a lot easier for us to travel. In fact, I leave Friday for our next eight episodes. Uh, we'll start shooting those uh, beginning Saturday and we'll go through the entire summer into October. So um, it's good to be vaccinated, fully vaccinated. <laughs> and everyone we are talking to is fully vaccinated. So now we can be together without masks. And these are all things as a production company you have to be very, very aware of when we go into any situation. But the Floridians especially were so, um, they understood we need we need to do this safely. Most of everything we did outside. That's why people love Florida. You can live an entire life outdoors. And uh, we were able to really capture what is a, an, an exceptional show. So before you, you take off to who knows where, uh, I don't want to put you on the spot, but can we bring you back to Florida for just a moment? Because I think for many of us, uh, you know, our first steps back into travel will be uh, you know, regional, to, to say the least. We're fortunate here in Florida because there's so much to do. How much time have you spent in Florida, Samantha? And do you have any favorite things that you like to do in the state? Oh, my gosh. Well, I feel like uh, one time I, I, I added up all the hours. Remember Malcolm Gladwell, 10,000 hours and you're an expert? Well, I have spent easily 26,000 hours traveling. 
And I would say that a good 13,000 of those hours were spent in Florida, <laughs> just yeah. from the beginning of my career, uh, focusing on theme parks and then, of course, great beaches. Florida is not just a destination, a number one destination in the United States. It's around the world. I don't know if maybe Floridians don't know this, but people around the world dream of going to Florida and just soaking in that sunshine. Maybe you do, because when you're in Florida, you see people from all around the world. Probably not this year, um, but certainly um, in the past years. I love Florida because one thing I think that doesn't, um, it gets, it, it, I would say it gets a bad rap for being so consumer driven. So about just, you know, how to have the perfect vacation, how to buy things, how to go to the theme parks, all these kinds of things. And what people miss is the integrity of the state and the people who live there. Um, the nature is almost unprecedented in terms of its beauty, the conservationism that exists, even like Sanibel Island, 67% of it is protected, protected marine lands and protected lands. Um, you have the Everglades, you have Big Cypress National Forest. Um, there's so many beautiful spaces uh, and, and natural spaces where um, it's really about how you can give back and how you can appreciate and how you can make sure it's safe for the next generation. And I say that that's really the attitude that most Floridians have about where they live. And that is the message that I always want to make sure people around this country are getting don't come here just to be a consumer. Understand the community that's here and help them support what makes their lives important because that only helps you and your travels as well. But it's that's great to hear her say, isn't it, Mark? I, I think uh, you know, for better or worse, over the last few decades, that theme parks really have overshadowed people, especially families, when they think of coming to Florida. But you and, and they're wonderful to visit, no question about it. But boy. You could do a trip and never go near one in Florida and and never have enough time to see all the things there are to see. And I think people lose sight of that. Do you do you feel that way, Samantha? I mean, you you know, you think of going to the Poconos for the mountains and the vistas. You go Florida, oh, what's in Florida besides flatland and lakes? Yeah, again, I think there there is this idea that it's for the consumer, that you're there part of the travel industry. It has such a uh, almost a corporate uh, bubble around it. And that is not the case when you actually go there. And it's not hard to do. I mean, even Orlando has a great uh, community of people, such diversity, right? Um, and there are, the downtown has a great area to walk around in and just feel where people live and little restaurants. Not everything has to be something that you can get wherever you go in the United States. Now, uh, I get it. I, I mean, one of the first things we did with my kids when they were ready was was go to one of the theme parks because it's what you dream of going to. And um, but then there becomes the wow, look at the I mean, the bird life alone. I mean, I could spend just hours looking at the birds of Florida and Amelia Island is one of my favorite locations. The Keys is where I spent um, uh, my honeymoon. Well, I spent it with my husband too. I wasn't there alone. <laughs> but um, so Florida just becomes a part of your life's journey, right? And so many of us, not only it's a part of our life's journey because of how we vacation, but it's how our parents vacationed. It's where our grandparents first vacationed, you know, they drove down from those cold states and, you know, took four days in a station wagon with four, you know, dirty, hungry kids, but they made it. And so there's just this um, 
I just love the, the, the heritage of Florida, that this is where people escaped. But just because you're getting away from your own life doesn't mean you should forget that it's a place where other people live too. And again, that's what I always try to reinforce. This isn't just a place for you. People live here and they have lives. They have full lives and they have um, uh, you know, passions. And when you get to know those passions, you have a much more intimate, more personal uh, experience, which is what a lot of us are going for. Um, just what, what does it mean? What does all of this mean in life? And I think Florida has a lot of the answers. We are talking uh, with uh, Samantha Brown, who, of course, is the host of the show on American Public Television, Samantha Brown's Places to Love. And, uh, and Samantha, if I may, um, you know, I think what makes your show unique, obviously, is you. Uh, people are getting a sense of that now. Uh, and, and I mean in saying that, that you don't play the role of the know-it-all host with the encyclopedic knowledge of everything. And you're, you're definitely not the naive, I'm overwhelmed by the challenges of travel, damsel in distress. You are thoughtful, you're informative, but mostly, and this is what I love about you, you are curious and you are game. I mean, you come to play, you come to learn, you come to engage uh, in a way that makes great TV. So, so there's a question here. here. Here's the question. I know you have a background in drama. Uh, you're an actress. So is that persona really you or is it a role that you have learned to play beautifully on television? Um, well, thank you very much for all those compliments. Um, the, uh, I'm no longer an actress. I was a long time ago, about 22 years ago. But uh, no, I am who I am. But I would say what a background in the arts helped me do in terms of acting is understand that one thing you learn as an actor is that whenever you're in a play, um, the mission, your goal is in the other person. It's never about you. Another rule of acting is that you never judge. You're not there to judge. Um, you're there to fulfill your motivation. And again, the motivation is always in the other person. And I take that to heart when it is, even though my name is on the, the title of the show, Samantha Brown's Places to Love. The show is not about me. It is about the other person. And it's what I do to connect with that person that I hope people are watching. Because whenever we travel, we do have to meet people halfway. That's harder to do when you are in foreign countries and there's a language barrier and a culture difference. But when you do meet someone halfway, when your intention is in the other person, you have... Um, Again, it's more personal travels. It's not for everybody. Maybe not everybody wants to do this, but I have always been fascinated by other people's lives. And I learned this very uh, um, right at the beginning of my career, which was spent going throughout Europe. And I would spend my days shooting in all the greatest hits, all the must-sees, the castles, the cathedrals, the monuments, the museums. And I was so lonely. I didn't want my job anymore. I didn't think that I'm like, I uh, travel is okay, but if this is it, it's not something I really deeply enjoy, especially not enough to be away 220 days out of the year. And then I just really zoned in um, on people. People changed who I was, and I just wanted to know more about them. And so just traveling is about enjoying people's everyday lives in another part of the world, which is extraordinary. So I really love people. Um, I could care less about, I shouldn't say this, the Colosseum in Rome or, or, or the, the Louvre in Paris. I, I don't, I, none of that really matters to me. It's about who are the people and um, because don't we live in a great world that we're all so different? How do I get to know them? 
It's not about the places, it's about the people. Great advice from travel show host Samantha Brown. And when we come back, she's got some tips and advice on how to make your next vacation even more memorable. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by... Florida Blue Medicare, offering health care without compromise through the plans and benefits now being offered for 2022. The annual enrollment period is October 15th through December 7th. Information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare. Check out Growing Boulder TV, airing on public television stations nationwide. Visit growingbolder.com slash TV for program listings and where to watch. You're listening to Growing Boulder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton. And we're going to continue now with a great conversation about getting back out the door, taking vacations, and returning to travel. Travel show host Samantha Brown continues now, this time with some tips and advice for getting the most out of your next trip. Here's Mark. The final episode in, in season four of your show is called uh, My Tips on How to Make Travel Count. It's your best advice based upon your over 20 years of travel. So uh, I hope we've inspired people to watch the entire episode, but, but can you share one or two of those tips with us today, Samantha, from your 22 years of travel? Absolutely. So um, one of my favorite tips that I've learned is um, I create a ritual. So wherever I travel to, if I'm there for more than two or th- three days, um, I do one thing, the same thing, the same time every single day. And so for me, it's it's a coffee shop that I'm going to begin my day at. It's not at the hotel. I never have coffee at my ho- Okay, I have one cup of coffee at my hotel. And then I head out just to wake up. Um, but then I sit down in that cafe. And that's where I go back every day. And there's a few things that that allows you to do. One, everyone in travel tells you that you've got to do 10 different things a day and never go down the same road twice. And I think if that becomes your mentality or your approach to travel, you become really bullied by time. And all about travel is about don't bully me, right? I want to have my time. I really want to stretch it out. And then the other thing it does is it helps you be a part of a more local scene. You get to feel the ebb and flow of a neighborhood better than if you were staying in your hotel or if you were in different cafes every single day. And I had so many people respond to me saying that they do that. And then sure enough, on like the fifth day, the barista knows your order. They know what you want. You feel like a million bucks because you feel like um, a local. The other thing that creating a ritual does is once you get really comfortable in a space, I feel like that's when you feel um, relaxed enough to turn to someone next to you and talk. And I think talking to people is really important. I think talking to strangers is one of the most important things you can do when you travel. But it's tough. And I think it, it, it needs a little bit of you relaxing. So again, creating a ritual really slows down time. It makes it your own. It allows you to relax and feel more a part of everyday life. And it also gives you that moment to open up to others and learn like maybe where you should go to lunch or what, what you should do next or just have a pleasant conversation. But just creating a ritual will change your travel experience. I do have a follow-up question to that, Bill, if I may, because I saw Samantha's Facebook post uh, about that. It has a photo of Samantha. You're recording the on-camera part of that episode. And in the post, you you write, ACAM 
Kevin O'Leary, BCAM, Kevin O'Leary, Gaffer, Kevin O'Leary, Helicopter, <laughs> Kevin O'Leary, Craft Services, Kevin O'Leary. You really put that Kevin O'Leary guy to work, don't you? He's been an intern that I married about uh, 15 years ago. <laughs> so he just is the price is right. You know, um, yeah, Kevin O'Leary, not to be confused with the Kevin O'Leary on Shark Tank. Ooh, sometimes right. we get calls about him like you're married to him. No, no, I'm not. He's my own Kevin O'Leary. But, yeah, we're a great team and um, and we're just able to produce great, great TV content together. And it's got to be a great blessing because. You know, the, the few times I travel without loved ones, uh, it, it's great to be there, but you always think, oh, my gosh, I, I wish I could share this. Uh, it, it seems like, uh, you know, you're always sharing it, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. And believe me, now, now there are times where I'm like, I really would like to be alone now <laughs> doing my job. <laughs> but, um, yeah, a lot of people ask me, like, when are you going to do a show about family travel? I'm like, never. <laughs> are you kidding me? I'm not bringing my kids. That's when I get to, you know, feel like I know what I'm doing. Kids make you feel like you have no idea what you're doing. And so, um, yeah, it's it's nice to uh, it's nice to have someone who understands that. He's a huge uh, traveler as well. He's traveled all around the world even before he met me. And so to bring our passions together to um, uh, really uh, create what we consider to be a very unique travel show with a, a different approach than a lot of a lot of different travel shows. He's he's absolutely a part of that. It's really interesting. And it's a, it's such a great connection too. And just so I get the record straight, which Kevin, did you take to Key West? <laughs> <laughs> you know, they, Not say that, <laughs> they say that travel is a great teacher and it's undisputable. Is, is there in light of that, is there some sort of like a, a broad strokes takeaway about life in general that you can share with us? What would you say the moral to this story is that we're all living and searching for? You know, it's something that I actually close it out in my, um, in my tips to make travel count episode. And I think what makes travel so special, because we get that question a lot, why travel? Why is it important? And maybe less so after a pandemic really stopped. We have a loss of travel. So now we realize, oh, if we don't travel, we don't connect with our loved ones. We don't we don't meet new people. We don't kind of stretch outside our own comfort zone. So travel has absolutely become a necessity. But one one thing that um, um, travel marks is a fresh start, right? It's it's something new. It's something to look forward to even before we go. And it's a fresh start whether we go an hour from our home for a weekend trip or go 10,000 miles away for two weeks. It's a new beginning. And as human beings, we are all um, on this spiritual journey, as it were, to understand more about ourselves, who we are as people. Um, and that means that we're a better person for ourselves, for our family, for our community. And nothing gives us that opportunity like travel. But it's about being somewhere new, different, away from home, and, um, and just feeling like um, uh, I've got this. Samantha Brown, thank you so much, uh, not just for what you do, but, but how you do it, because we talk a lot about the value of getting out of our comfort zone through travel. Mm -hmm. uh, and you are as good as it gets, I think, at putting people in a comfort zone when they are out of their comfort zone. Not an easy thing to do. So, folks, be sure to check out Samantha Brown's Places to Love. It's on public broadcasting stations all over the country. You can actually watch previous episodes on her website, which is samantha-brown.com. Uh, you can check her out on Samantha Brown Travels on Instagram and also on Facebook. Uh, Samantha, it's been fun. Thank you so much. 
The pleasure has been mine. Thank you so much for having me on. Coming up, a thought-provoking conversation with a former NPR journalist who believes that one of the keys to success might just have something to do with our own delusions. Could that be true? We'll find out. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by The Alliance for Lifetime Income. Protected income from an annuity can help cover essential expenses in retirement, giving you the freedom to live the life you want. The right financial professional can show you how. Learn more at protectedincome.org. And by the Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. One of the best things you can do for your health doesn't come from a pharmacy. It's not a pill. It's not a supplement. But it can make you feel better like that. Here's aging expert Annette Kelly. I'm sure you've heard that in Japan, physicians give um, prescriptions for an hour in the forest. What does that actually mean? An hour in the forest? Why would you need a prescription for that? Just go. But we don't. But to wander in the green space is uh, so refreshing and uh, thought-provoking as well as life-giving and it pulls you out of yourself even though there's no one else there. And it's a, it brings you to something that you often talk about, and that's connection. Yeah. The yeah. power of connection. Yeah. And even if you're home alone, mm-hmm. you can use Zoom. Mm-hmm. You can reach out sure. with a video call. Oh, absolutely. You can use technology in ways that right. we've always avoided before. Yes. And actually even just phone calls, Bill, you know, and notes. I've been, um, all through the, the uh, pandemic, I've been writing notes several a week to people that I don't see because I'm not out to see them. And um, generally older people because their contacts are down like mine are. And uh, the responses I've gotten have... <laughs> have been really overwhelming. You know, you'd think it was a, you know, a big present or something, you know, because we don't write notes anymore. I grew up in an era, so did you maybe, of notes. And uh, I learned how to write notes, you know, from my parents. And, uh, and I'm enjoying it so much, doing it. And then the response has been fabulous. So what kind of a connection is that? That is something that a, a person receiving a handwritten note knows they were the object of someone's intention, without a doubt. Looking up the address, whatever the words say, it can be very simple. When you're the object of someone else's intention, and I'm not just saying attention, but intention, that has to be so health-providing that um, we, should, we should do it more. I mean, I'm, I'm a believer. Reach out to someone. It'll make a difference in their lives and yours. More insights and information at growingbolder.com slash Medicare.
I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton, and this is Growing Bolder, where we talk pretty much every day about the power of our belief system and how we have to imagine that more is possible before you can ever consider making it a reality. Of course, we can't deceive ourselves. No one is getting out of here alive. But the idea that more is possible, that comebacks are achievable, that disease is beatable, it's not only powerful, it's important as well. And that's why we were fascinated to learn about a new book from Shankar Verdantum, a New York Times best-selling author and former NPR journalist and the host of a great podcast called The Hidden Brain. His new book is called Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain, in which he makes the fascinating case that sometimes honesty, Mark, is not the best policy. Yeah, I'm anxious to talk to this guy. And, you know, Bill, I think more than anything else, great writers, and he certainly is that, are very curious. It's curiosity that leads them down some interesting and sometimes, uh, as is this the case, uh, provide paths, and that's exactly what happened to Shankar. You know, when he heard the story of a guy by the name of David Lowry, he became curious. So here's the setup, folks. Decades ago, Lowry impersonated a woman writing thousands of love letters to men all across America, asking them for money, and he got it. He was a con artist, and after he was arrested and charged with mail fraud, many of his victims called to testify against him, said they didn't care that they were deceived. Some even went so far as to say their lives had been transformed for the better because the love letters kept them from depression and suicide. It's that story that begins his new book, Useful Delusions. So let's get with it as we talk to Shankar Vedantam. Shankar, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thank you so much for having me on your program. Well, thank you for, for all you've done. And before we get to the book, uh, yeah, I, I have to ask you, I'm curious if you think the timing of the book's release is either great or is it terrible? Because we find ourselves, <laughs> uh, you know, at this moment, we're, we're in this post-truth world, fake news, social media deception, rampant conspiracy theories, and we have all been hit over the head repeatedly with a very blunt instrument now known as the big lie. So are you worried that the subtlety, that the impact of your message might get lost? I am worried about that, to be perfectly honest with you. My book really is a book about science and how the brain works. Uh, It does speak about delusions, uh, but it also suggests that sometimes delusions can be useful. Uh, And that's a dangerous, a potentially dangerous message at this time because people are thinking so much about dangerous delusions. uh, And I certainly am worried that people are going to take my book and assume that all delusions are good for you, which is not at all what I'm saying. Well, then let's dive into that just a little bit. Let's talk about useful delusions. What kind of self-deceptions are actually good for us? Well, let me give you the simplest of all examples. Uh, All of us almost have dealt with this if we are parents, and certainly all of us have dealt with this because we have parents. Uh, the, The experience of parenting is often shaped by great heaps of delusional thinking. I know when my own daughter was born, I I sort of believed that this was the most special child in the entire universe, you know, a miracle beyond all miracles. And it, of course, cannot logically be correct that millions of parents are simultaneously correct when they believe that their child is the most special child in the world. I, I call this a useful delusion because over many millions of years of evolution, our brains have realized that by imbuing a sense of delusional love 
in parents for their children, this helps to keep the species alive. It helps to protect children, helps parents to invest all the things that they need to invest to raise their children successfully. It might not be perceiving reality accurately, but it plays an extremely functional role in accomplishing something very important. That's the kind of thing I call a useful delusion. And this is the reason we wanted to talk to you, Shankar, because there really is an intersection between your book and what we do every day. You know, Bill and I always say we don't deny the reality of our mortality. Bad stuff happens to good people as we age. But Mm -hmm. the fact that we believe we are all capable of making more out of the rest of our life is important. And I know that is one of your useful delusions when we are diagnosed with something really, really bad. I mean, you write that sometimes it's good to believe that, uh, you know, nothing bad is going to happen. Yeah, there have been a variety of studies that have looked at whether it's better to look at your diseases with a realistic eye or with a pessimistic eye or with an optimistic eye. And and the studies generally find that it really helps to look at your own life, your own life conditions, certainly any disorders or diseases you have with an optimistic frame, that patients who tend to look at their own disease conditions and believe you know, perhaps delusionally, that they're going to beat the disease, that they're going to get the better of the disease. They might not be right, but they often have better outcomes than patients who look at their own conditions with either pessimism or even with realism. And again, it speaks to the idea that when we think about our beliefs, we think that our beliefs are merely reflecting what the outside world is. The the thesis of my book is really that in many ways, our beliefs help end up constructing the world in which we live. So when we have an optimistic view of our lives, when we are suffering from a disease, but we believe we're going to beat the disease, that optimistic attitude is part of what helps us beat the disease itself. So the belief has a way, in some cases, of becoming reality. And and I guess it's not just with diseases, too, Mark and Shankar, because I guess maybe some of the lies we tell ourselves can explain why some of us live longer than others. And and can they even explain things like why some couples stay in love when others don't? Are there important lies to tell ourselves? Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, you mentioned the idea of love. Uh, You know, I sometimes wonder what would happen as as a thought experiment if the three of us went to every couple getting married in the United States and we asked them a question on their wedding day. And the question is, what are the odds that you think you're going to get divorced? Uh, and if people were looking at just as, as like, at the facts as statisticians, they would say, you know, approximately one in two marriages ends in divorce. There's no reason to think that I'm particularly different from anyone else. You know, there's a 50-50 chance we're going to get divorced. I would bet that almost no couple getting married is going to put their odds of divorce at 50%. And you can say, well, that's sort of charming that people sort of believe that they're going to be immune to this this phenomenon that affects other people. But I would say that's actually much more powerful and important than that. The fact that couples don't believe that they're going to get divorced, the faith that they have in one another, the faith they have this relationship is going to last, that faith is itself an important ingredient in the relationship lasting. Here again, I think, is another example where our beliefs, our faith in the people around us can transform those relationships in very powerful ways. Again, to be perfectly clear, there are times this can go awry. You know, there are times when we can put our faith in people and that faith is misplaced, that faith is dangerous. People sometimes end up in abusive relationships. I'm not saying self-deception is always good, but I am saying that there are times our delusional beliefs in other people can produce reality that, in fact, is very good. 
Uh, the power of our belief system. Uh, you know, it really is amazing, folks. We're talking with uh, Sean Carvey Dantum about his new book, Useful Delusions. And, uh, you know, Sean Carvey, this is a very, you know, kind of superficial observation here. But but I like in the book where you talk about wine because I am a casual wine drinker. And, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Uh, you know, there's an example that, uh, you know, where a little bit of self-delusion when it comes to drinking wine can not only be enjoyable, but it can be really cost-effective, can't it? <laughs> That's right. So there have been experiments that have been run where, where you, you take a, a $10 bottle of wine and then very sneakily you take the, the wine and you pour it into another bottle, which is marked at $90. So now you have $10 wine from a $10 bottle and you have $10 wine being poured out of a $90 bottle. And when you give a blind tasting test to wine connoisseurs, they will invariably tell you that the wine that comes out of the $90 bottle tastes better than the wine that comes out of the $10 bottle. You know, so it's the same wine, but they, they perceive it as actually tasting better when it comes out of the more expensive bottle. Remarkably, research experiments have found that if you put people in brain scans and actually measure what's happening inside their brains as they drink different kinds of wine, the reward centers in their brain are lit up more when they're drinking the $10 wine out of the $90 bottle. So it's not just that they're logically inferring that the more expensive bottle of wine must be the better wine. They're actually experiencing it as better wine. And I think this is a striking example of how, in some ways, our expectations of the world have a way of actually shaping our perceptions of the world. Certainly when it comes to our experience of wine, you could argue the reason we drink wine is to produce subjective pleasure. And if you get more subjective pleasure from drinking $10 wine from a bottle that's marked at $90, potentially, you know, you're getting your money's worth. Man, this is, this is such a great conversation. It's so interesting to try to find the roots of the way we perceive things. And, and one of the cool things, and probably one of the reasons this was interesting to you, is because you're a fascinating guy. I mean, you, this guy has a degree in electronics engineering. You're a journalist, a, a social scientist, and a writer. You've written nonfiction, plays, even comedy. How, how do you decide what's next for you, and why aren't you afraid to step out of your comfort zone? and take chances. Well, that's very kind of you to say that. I, I feel like uh, with, with like everyone else, I'm often, you know, uh, I feel a lot of inertia in my life. I often feel hesitant to sort of step out and try new things. But, but I will say that I am someone who deeply, ha- you know, is, is passionate about a lot of things. And I find a lot of things really interesting. And one thing that I have tried to do throughout my life is to really pursue the passions and interests that I have. And those passions and interests have changed over time. Sometimes, you know, what I love now might not be what I loved 15 or 20 years ago. But I I found that when you focus on your passions, and in many ways this speaks to the theme of my book, the, the, the idea of useful delusions, when you have a passion for something, it really buffers you from a lot of the setbacks that you might experience as you're pursuing that passion. Uh, if you choose a career that's just about making money or just about you know, becoming famous, you know, even when you get those things, those things might feel unsatisfying. But I found that when you pursue your passions, the things that you genuinely care about, regardless of whether you succeed or fail, there is an intrinsic satisfaction that you derive from doing those things. And in, in some ways, ironically, you're most, you're most likely to actually succeed when you're actually pursuing the things that you love. So I, I don't necessarily think of myself as being a very courageous person, but I, will think of, I do think of myself as being someone who has a lot of interests and deep passions and has tended to follow those passions over the course of his life. 
And, you know, the good news for all the rest of us, uh, Shankar, is that those passions, uh, you know, easily jump through uh, the microphone, easily jump through the screen. Um, You know, what you're doing is really good. We've talked to a lot of writers on this show who have written very provocative books, but not all of them can engage the audience like you can. So, you know, God bless you for being able to do that. And, you know, you know, one of the things we like about you is, is that a lot of people write about a lot of stuff, but you put what you write through scientific rigor. I mean, you are a social scientist. Uh, your work draws on psychology and neuroscience and philosophy. Um, so let me ask you this. Uh, uh, yeah. What kind of self-delusions do you engage in? <laughs> well, certainly the, the example I gave you about parenting, I think, is a very good example. But, but you mentioned philosophy a second ago, so let me give you something that I've been thinking about the last few days. It actually comes to us from, from Greek philosophy. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with um, the, the, the philosophical ideas around what's called the ship of Theseus. Have you heard about this idea, the ship of Theseus? I have not, no. So Theseus was apparently a great uh, warrior, and uh, when he finally returned from his various adventures, uh, his ship was was essentially stationed in the harbor as a sort of museum piece to remember his great exploits. And over the years, over the decades, the ship eventually disintegrated, it rotted, and as planks started to, you know, planks of the ship uh, when when rotted or, or disintegrated, they were replaced by new planks. Uh, and eventually, over time, over a matter of centuries, Every single plank in the ship of Theseus was replaced by a new plank. Uh, and, and the philosophical question raised by philosophers such as Plato is, if the ship is entirely constructed of new planks, at some point, is it still the old ship or has it become a new ship? Mm. And then even more provocatively, let's say you took all the old planks of the old ship of Theseus and reassembled them into a new ship. Is that the original ship of the ship of Theseus or is it in fact a new ship altogether? And the reason I mention all of this in the context of the question you raised is that when I think about the delusions in my own life, uh, you can draw an analogy between the ship of Theseus and our own existence as human beings. You know, all of us at a biological level are composed of cells, but those cells turn over. You know, the cells that you have in your body today are not the cells you had in your body 10 years ago. In fact, everything has been replaced. Everything is, is new. But you still think of yourself as being the same person as you were 10 years ago. Or think about the mind, you know, the thoughts that we have, the beliefs that we have, the attitudes that we have. All of this in some ways has been constructed over many, many years through layer upon layer of revision and reconstruction. And yet we think of ourselves as being the same person that we were 20 years ago, 30 years ago. One of the most profound delusions that I think affects all of us is that we actually think that there is the same person who goes through life over many, many decades, when both at a biological level and at a psychological level, we're constantly being reconstructed. Love it. Man, Love it. after we're done here, I'm going to have to take some time to pick my brain out of the sky because you've <laughs> really filled it with so many interesting <laughs> thoughts. It, it, it makes me wonder, it, it, all that you have seen and all that you have learned and all that you have thought about, from your perspective, have you found a moral to the story of life? I, is there something that you've learned about life in general that, that's most important to our, our happiness? Well, I think in many ways, I've, I think the, the insight that I've had certainly in writing this book is that it's really important in some ways if your life doesn't feel like it has meaning to almost generate that meaning. Uh, having meaning, regardless of what that meaning is, you can build your meaning around a religious belief, around a professional identity, around your social identity, around being a great parent or a great father. 
you know, I think having something is really important. It anchors us as we go through life. Uh, certainly, I think for my own part, uh, you know, I'm deeply passionate about the work that I do, about the ideas that I'm uh, describing. I try to be, you know, a good husband and a good father. I, I, I sometimes succeed and I sometimes fail. Uh, but these are the things that give my own life sustenance. He is Shankar Vedantam. His new book, Useful Delusions, The Power and Paradox of the Self-Deceiving Brain, pretty much available everywhere that sells cool books by great authors. Uh, uh, Shankar, thank you so much for your time. Cannot wait to see what's next. Uh, We certainly know there is going to be one. So uh, appreciate your time, and, and thanks for all you do. up next sometimes the last thing you need is a delusion because we're going to get the truth accurate and straight it's time for on my mind with mark this is growing bolder support for growing bolder provided by winter park's new crosby wellness center at the center for health and well-being More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures. Becoming an entrepreneur is becoming more and more popular these days, especially with people over 50. A recent study pointed out that a quarter of all new entrepreneurs were between the ages of 55 and 64, and that's an increase of 10% in the last five years. And their success rate is just about the same as any other age group. And while there are advantages to being your own boss, there are challenges, too, like not having access to an employer-based retirement savings plan. But fortunately, there are tools and resources out there for those who are self-employed that can help secure their financial future. Here are some things you can do to help save enough money for retirement at whatever age you decide it should be. Consider tax-advantaged SEP and simple IRA retirement accounts. Now, there are some differences, but basically they're similar to employer-sponsored 401k plans. And if you want your business to keep operating after you retire, develop a succession plan, sale, or other transaction to hand over ownership, which may require additional funds. And just like a company pension, consider adding an annuity to your retirement plan, which gives you a stream of protected lifetime income to help cover your essential monthly expenses in retirement. There are benefits and limitations to all of these ideas, so it is important to sit down with a financial and or tax professional who can help you create a retirement income plan for your post-entrepreneurial life. The Alliance for Lifetime Income is a nonprofit educational organization that believes no American should have to face the prospect of running out of money in retirement. Visit protectedincome.org for easy-to-understand information, tools, and guides, and stories of real-life Americans who have found ways to protect their retirement and have the freedom to live life boldly. My guard stood hard when abstract threats to noble, to neglect. No matter what age you are, as time rolls by, things change. We change. Our situations, perspectives, and priorities 
just taking a moment to talk about something important can make a big difference. And that's why in each program, we bring you On My Mind with Mark. You know, what's on my mind today, Bill, is actually something that you said on this program recently, when you started talking about uh, we all want a pill that's going to put us into shape. And, you know, I, I love this conversation because everybody now is talking about an impending longevity revolution. And there's no question that science and medicine and technology are all conspiring to unlock, you know, life extension moving forward. And there really is no question that there's going to be some mind-blowing breakthroughs in the decades ahead that will provide the opportunity to live longer. But, but folks, here's what's on my mind. Don't be deceived because there never will be anything like exercise in a pill, but you can bet your bottom dollar there will be many pills marketed as such. Gene editing, designer drug cocktails, injecting or uh, in, uh, ingesting nanobots into our bodies, cellular reprogramming, novel immunotherapies, it doesn't make any difference. These things will be realized to some extent on their own, but they will do nothing to help us live productive, adventurous, active, interesting lives. They will only deliver the potential to live a better life, but they will not do that. You know, Bill, as we've talked about many times on this program, if you want to keep moving, you have got to keep moving. No matter what interventions they cook up, and Lord knows they're going to cook up a bunch of them, nothing, no pill, no shot will ever help you have a higher quality of life. That only comes from personal desire, from determination, and from dedication to getting off the couch. Yeah, and you you think about why do you want to live longer? What do you want to do with those extra years? Do you want to have more years so you could just sit there and watch the world go by? Or do you want to have extra years so you can participate, you can be a part of, you can have adventures, you can try out new opportunities? Well, that comes from being mobile. It comes from being sharp. It comes from being engaged. Feeling good makes all the difference in the world. And feeling good comes from using your body, using your mind, not just having procedures or taking some kind of supplements that kind of mask what you already have. So I, I totally get what, you, what you're saying. Why would you want to take a pill that, that changes your cholesterol and your blood pressure instead of doing the things that will get rid of it for you by being active? Yeah, a, a pill might help you, but, but yeah, it is not going to give you the quality of life that you need. That just comes from being active. And, and folks, don't misunderstand what we're saying. You don't have to be an athlete. You don't have to get out and work out every single day, but you have to find a way to move with whatever limitations you might have. Find the things you love and do them the way you always wished you could. Be a part of life. Be you, and the rest will take care of itself. That's what Growing Boulder is all about. Check us out at growingbolder.com for more, and we'll see you right here again very, very soon. Ah, but I was so much older then.